I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible to me how relevant the Bible really is because he, ta- he begins to talk about an issue that is really at the forefront of what we're dealing with, I think, in some ways as a, as a culture, as a society. And so with that in mind, let's just jump in and hear what he has to say. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, he says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God's word for us tonight. If you would, let's pray before we consider it. Father, we would ask for mercy and for uh, your spirit to come and to teach us, to open up our eyes, to unclog our ears, to soften our hearts so that um, whatever is beautiful and true and good and right would be pressed home deeper, deeper into our own hearts and uh, translate more and more into our own lives. So we would ask for uh, Holy Spirit's help now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We live in a culture that prides itself on being tolerant and open-minded. I mean, in many ways, this is... These are the primary, ultimate values of the world that we're living in, the the society and the culture that we're living in. And so, the opposite of that, to be judgmental, is like the, the worst... This is like the unforgivable sin, the most heinous thing that you could possibly do. To, to any way be uh, intolerant is the worst thing that you can really do in this particular society. Uh, if you remember last summer, summer of 2012, Dan Cathy, who is the president of Chick-fil-A, was asked what he thought about same-sex marriage. And he vocalized his opinion that he disagreed with same-sex marriage. And the response of the culture was interesting. There were protests. Uh, the Jim Henson Company dropped Chick-fil-A as a client for, to like make the little toys for their Happy Meal, Chick-fil-A versions of Happy Meals. Um, several cities said that they, they, they vowed to not let Chick-fil-A open up franchises in their particular cities. And, and I, in reflecting on this, I, I found an article uh, from the New York Times that was written by a practicing homosexual about this particular issue that happened, went down last summer. It's very interesting because he says in this article, the author says, you know, obviously as a gay man, I disagree with Dan Cathy's opinion and I'm offended by his perspective. But then what he said next was really interesting because he basically said, but if we are going to, as a culture, embrace tolerance, that means that we, that we have to be aware of and, and 
uh, respectful to even opinions and beliefs that we don't like. And here's someone, gay man, disagrees with him, who says that the cultural response to what Dan Cathy said is confusing. Because if we're really going to practice tolerance, that means we have to be aware of and accept and affirm and respect views that are different from us. If we only respect and affirm views that are our views and we protest and hate the views we disagree with, that's what we call intolerance. Now, I bring all of this up, not in any way to give a political or religious statement or perspective about same-sex marriage or homosexuality or even about the Chick-fil-A thing. I'm only bringing this up as an example to show you that as a culture, we're a little confused when it comes to our highest ranking value. So then what, the question is, what really is tolerance then? What is real tolerance with respect and civility towards other people that may have opposing views and perspectives than us? Well, we're going to see it in this passage. I think Jesus is incredibly helpful. Because what he does is he first calls us to tolerance, to real gospel-centered biblical tolerance. Secondly, he shows us the practice of tolerance. And lastly, he shows us the key to how we can do it. So those are the three things I want to look at with you tonight, okay? The call of tolerance, the call for tolerance, the practice of it, and then the key to it. Three points. Let's jump in. First, the call to tolerance. You know how when you go bowling, uh, if you're terrible at bowling, you get the little rubber bumpers on the gutters, which prevents the ball from directly going into the gutter, like how I would bowl. And so it keeps it bouncing off and staying in the middle. Well, that's kind of the mental image that I want you to have as we look at this. Because what I think Jesus does is he lays down two different bumpers for us, two different guardrails, two different boundaries to say, if we're, I'm calling you to tolerance, but there are two boundaries you cannot cross. The first bumper that he lays down is the bumper of judgmentalism. The boundary that you cannot cross is to go into the arena of being judgmental. There it is in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. It's basically saying don't judge. Okay, so what does he mean? Does he mean, as some people think, that Jesus is saying there should be no formally elected judges, no judicial system, just shut down the courts? Is that what Jesus is saying? That's what Tolstoy believed. No, this is not what Jesus means. Jesus is not speaking about courts. He's not talking about judicial systems. He's talking about how individuals relate to each other. So that's not what he means, okay? So does he mean then that he wants you to shut your brain off and to stop thinking and you're no longer allowed to think critically about issues and no longer allowed to have convictions about what is truth and what is false, about what is evil and what is good? Is that what he means? If that's what he means then what he means in the situation of this, this past week is uh, you see people uh, die in horrific events of ex random explosions at the Boston Marathon. And if that's what he's saying, then he says, your perspective on that should be, well, you know, who am I to judge? If someone wants to blow other people up, you know, that's their business, and I'm in no position to judge whether that's right or wrong or good or bad, and so let, you, know, you can do whatever you want. Of course that's not what Jesus is saying. Of course that's not what he's speaking. So what is he saying then? Because he's saying you can have value judgments against people and issues and religion. So what does this mean then? 
What he means is, when he says do not judge, he means do not have a condemning, self-righteous attitude towards people you disagree with. It's one thing to disagree with people. It's another thing to condemn them and to despise them. Which really, which, okay, which really is the danger. Because if you're passionate about something, you believe something to be true, strongly believe it to be true, and if someone opposes you about that, or someone disagrees with you about that, or maybe someone doesn't even have the same passion that you do about that, it is so easy to slip into despising that person. So, for example, if you strongly believe that people should only eat locally grown, organic food, you're going to be tempted to hate Walmart and high fructose corn syrup and the people like me that love it. If you believe, if you strongly believe, I know, that's awful. If you strongly believe that uh, caring for the earth and the environment is, is your highest priority as a human being, then you are going to think people who do not recycle are committing the unforgivable sin. People who put a plastic bottle in the normal trash can, appalling. <laughs> if, you, if you strongly believe that sex trafficking is the number one injustice in the world right now, and it is your responsibility to be a part of stopping it, then you are going to be tempted to look down your nose at people that don't have that same passion. You are going to be tempted to to condemn your fellow brothers and sisters that may not have that same drive and excitement to put it into that horrible thing. Or if you believe, if you strongly believe that it is your responsibility to protect life when it's in the womb, then you are going to be strongly tempted to not just disagree with people that are pro-choice, but to hate them, to despise them. It's very slippery, but you see how easy it is to slip, to not just disagree with people, but to actually despise them when they disagree with you. So then what do we do? What's the uh, response? Should we just not have strong beliefs? Should we just privatize all of our opinions and all of our convictions and don't talk about it because that causes fuss? Well, no. That's, that's actually the other bumper that Jesus lays down. The first bumper is, okay, we cannot cross over into self-righteous judgmentalism. But on the other hand, we can't cross over into apathetic disengagement. That's the other bumper he puts down. Here's where I get this from. If you look at verse 3 and five, three through 5, uh, Jesus gives this little somewhat humorous illustration, and we'll look at it more in a second. But to set it up, Jesus is basically saying, let's just say that there's a speck of sawdust in someone else's eye. There's a foreign object in their face, and therefore there's something wrong with them. He calls you to move towards that person to help remove it. To actually engage with that person where something is wrong with them and to help them. Now, uh, he says, of course, in verse 5, there's some personal work that you've got to do before that. First, take the log out of your own eye. And we'll look at what that means here in a second. But I want you to notice, the end game of what he's talking about, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's what he's getting at. We do not apathetically sit on the sidelines. We don't just turn our brains off and seal our lips. He says, no, we actually actively engage with our friends and with classroom discussions and with the culture about issues that are controversial and explosive and hard 
But we do it. We engage. We don't just sideline ourselves and turn our brains off and privatize our beliefs, but we actually engage. In other words, when we see things that are wrong in other human beings about the way that they're thinking, acting, or believing, we lovingly move towards them to help them. So, you see what he's saying? He said, on the one hand, you cannot self-righteously despise people you disagree with. But on the other hand, you still may have to disagree with some people. And that's okay, but as you do that, don't expect uh, always a loving response uh, back. This is his whole point with verse six. With verse uh, six, there are no guarantees. <laughs> y'all are filthy. Every single week, y'all are filthy. There are no guarantees that as you are dialoguing with people about ethics or about truth or about beauty, that they're not going to be tolerant with you back. Because verse 6 says uh, they may actually get more upset and turn and attack you as a response. So, we're speaking very broadly here. I just want you to see from the get-go, there's a lot of wiggle room in the middle between these two bumpers, but Jesus is calling us to live within these two bumpers. He's calling us to this form of tolerance. We engage with people we disagree with, but we don't despise and condemn and hate them. We don't slip over into judgmentalism. Okay, so let's get practical here. Let's, let's bring this down to the ground level. How do we do this in practice? He actually lays this out, I think, really clearly in uh, verses 3 through 5. So let's take a little deeper look at that little story he tells. Okay, let's assume you're the one with the speck of sawdust in your eye. And it's, it's painful, it's irritating, it's making your eye water, it's hurting you. And it has to come out or it's going to get uh, infected. So let's say someone comes over to help you, but they have a 40-foot rafter hanging out of their face from their eye socket. This is, um, this is not the person you would want to help you in this situation. They're completely blind and they can't help you. So what he's doing in this story is I think he's giving you two practical principles on how to do real biblical tolerance in this way. Here's the first principle I want to highlight. Real to- the practice of real tolerance means that um, it, 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 for the, sorry, the, the, for the practice of real tolerance <laughs> involves self-criticism. The practice of real tolerance involves self-criticism. This is the whole idea. He's saying, look, you cannot help somebody else unless you're willing to recognize and deal with your own flaws first. You cannot help somebody else unless you're willing to admit not just that you have flaws and things that are messed up about you, but unless you're willing to admit that your sin, your issues, are actually, it's actually more dangerous, more harmful than theirs. Comparatively, you have the log, they have the speck. So here's what this looks like. Um, a uh, funny story of this. I sat down with a student a couple years ago, and uh, they were having roommate issues, which none of y'all have ever experienced. But um, he, this particular individual wanted to move out of his house. He was having all kinds of issues with his roommates, and he just he wanted to move out. And so I was like, okay, well, let's go back to freshman year. What did freshman year look like? He said, well, my, my first roommate freshman year, first semester, we got along great, but by about October, we were at each other's throats, and so I moved out. I got a new roommate spring semester. And spring semester started out fine, and it ended up okay, but it just ended up with us being kind of cold and distant. We just did not talk to each other. That's kind of how that relationship ended. 
And then my sophomore year, uh, after a while, I got really frustrated uh, with my roommates and I was looking for a different kind of living situation for the next year. And I was like, okay, hold on. I'm, not, I'm no scientist, but what is the one constant in all of these relationship situations? You. <laughs> You're the problem. It's not them. It's you. You're the problem. And that's what it takes. Are you willing to admit that you're the problem? Are you willing to admit, are you willing to say, my sin, my issues, my flaws, my shortcomings, my failures, they're they're actually more deadly to society, more toxic to this campus than anybody else's? Unless you are willing to say, I'm a complete mess and my motives are all messed up and I lie to myself and I think I'm a lot better than I really am. Unless you're willing to analyze yourself that way and be critical with yourself that way, you'll never be, you'll never ever be in a position to have a healthy, constructive, fruitful dialogue with people that you disagree with. Because you're always going to think that you're right and you're always going to assume that they are wrong. You know, one of the great things about doing campus ministry is I get to do weddings. I get to marry y'all, not personally, (laughs) but officially. I get to officiate your weddings. And because uh, I've I've had the pleasure of doing that, I get to do premarital counseling with with several couples. And one of my favorite things to do is when I sit down and talk with a couple is to talk about how couples do conflict. Because usually what happens is each person approaches conflict from a different strategic standpoint. And so I get them to identify. And so one, one person in the couple will say, will basically have this uh, strategy when it comes to conflict of, uh, I must win. When the, when the fight happens, when the argument happens, I press and I full court press them until they cave and understand my position and I win. And then the second person, usually in some situations, says, well, that's not my approach to conflict. My approach to conflict is that I, I just, I yield. I always give in. I always say I'm sorry first. I always just sort of, I just want the conflict over, so I just kind of give in to get it over with. So then the question that I ask this couple to do is to say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell me and to tell your fiancé what's wrong with your conflict strategy And what's actually good about the other person's. And they can't do it. Couples have such a hard time conceiving that there would be anything wrong with my approach to conflict. And how terribly screwed up the other person's approach to conflict is. They can't see what's wrong in them and what's good about the other person. But that's what Jesus is calling us to do. You will never be able, ever, ever, ever be able to do real effective tolerant, civil, respectful dialogue with people you disagree with if you always assume you're 100% right and you're always suspicious of them. So really, first, the practice of tolerance involves self-criticism, self-analysis. Here's the second uh, principle of what is involved in the practice of tolerance. The second principle is that it involves incredible sensitivity. Incredible sensitivity. If you think about the I... You think about um, why Jesus chose this organ for his little illustration here. The eye is incredibly sensitive. You just, you merely touch it and your eyelid wants to close and your eye starts getting watery. It's so sensitive. And so to actually, I mean, I don't know if you've ever helped somebody get like an eyelash or something out of their eye. You have to be incredibly delicate, incredibly sensitive because the eye is so tender. It is so sensitive. 
And what I think Jesus is suggesting here is that as you approach dialoguing about really important, serious issues, you have to approach it with incredible sensitivity, incredible compassion, incredible thoughtfulness. So if you are going to speak to the issues that are explosive in our day, which I strongly think Jesus encourages you to do, issues like same-sex marriage, homosexuality, abortion, gun laws, whatever. If you're going to speak to those issues, Jesus is calling you to speak to those issues with incredible sensitivity and incredible thoughtfulness, almost like you're handling a baby with incredible care, incredible realizing that there is so much at stake with these explosive issues. And if you are going to speak to these issues from Facebook or from Twitter or from behind the protective shell of the Internet, the same rules apply. Just because you're not speaking with another human face-to-face, that does not give you a license to spray venom on everybody else's newsfeed. You have to approach these issues, regardless if it's over the internet or if it's face-to-face with another human being, you have to approach these issues incredibly thoughtfully, incredibly sensitively, incredibly delicately. But yes, you have to approach them. So that really is the, the practice of tolerance that he lays out for you. He calls us to tolerance. He lays out the practice of it, self-examination, self-criticism, as well as sensitivity. So here's the question. How in the world can we do this? How in the world can we be people that are hard on ourselves and gracious with people that we strongly disagree with? What's the key to this? Well, Let's look at this last thing quickly. The key to real tolerance, real biblical tolerance, is that you have to have a bigger vision of God. That's the key. You want to be tolerant people? You've got to get a bigger grasp of who God is. And what Jesus does is he gives you two different images of who God is in this text to help you, to help focus your attention. The first image he gives is that God is a judge. That's the first image he gives you. God is judge. If you look at verse 1 and 2 again, Jesus says, don't judge so that God won't judge you. In other words, he's saying God is the real judge. God's the ultimate judge. And the reason why you're not supposed to crawl up on the throne and judge other people is because you're not God. That position is reserved for somebody with omniscience who knows everything. He's the judge. But because God is the judge, this means that God will judge perfectly fair. He is perfectly just, perfectly fair in the way that he judges. And so if you look at verse 2, this is why Jesus says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, God is so fair. At the end of your life, when you've got to give an account to God the judge for everything you've done or haven't done, God's going to look at you and say, hey, I'm going to be perfectly fair with you. I'll tell you what, I'm not, I'm not going to judge you according to my standards. We'll just take the Ten Commandments off the table. I'm just, I'll just judge you according to the same standards that you've applied to other people. Perfectly fair, perfectly just. So if you've ever judged a politician for not telling the truth, I'll just be perfectly fair and I'll judge you according to how well you've done it, telling the truth. 
If you judge the car in front of you because they're going slow and they're slowing you down and you're in a hurry, I'll be perfectly fair and I'll just judge you according to how, whenever you've inconvenienced anybody in your life, if you've ever done that. You know, this, this actually reminded me of a story that has actually stuck with me. My first year here, four years ago, I was sitting down with a student at Black Cat. And he was talking to me uh, about RUF and his experience. He was like, look, I really appreciate how warm and gracious and inviting RUF is. Uh, but why is it when I go to other churches, uh, they feel, it feels so harsh and rigid and critical? They just seem mean. And, and my response to that is I climbed up on my soapbox and I started venting to this person. I was like, well, because they don't understand the gospel. If they understood the gospel, if they grounded their identity in Jesus instead of something else, that wouldn't turn them into the jerks that they're acting like. They're, they're, you know, that turns them into hypocritical, self-righteous Pharisees, and therefore they're not gentle with anybody. <laughs> and I, the reason this stands out to me is because I, I caught myself once I said it. I'm like, good grief. <laughs> I'm not being gentle right now. I'm being a jerk right now to these people. I'm guilty of the same thing I'm saying they're guilty of. I'm being a self-righteous, hypocritical jerk. And that's what God does. He says, okay, look. I'm going to judge you, but to be perfectly fair, I'll just judge you according to the standards that you have for other people. And if that's true, that should make everybody in this room shudder. Because we can't even keep our laws, much less God's laws. We can't even live up to our own standards. And so if, if we're going to buy into tolerance, the first thing Jesus says is, look, you have to get a bigger grasp of the reality that God is judge. And he's absolutely committed to justice and truth. But the second image that God gives, that Jesus gives us, is that God is Father. Did you notice that? Really at the end, this is what Jesus is doing in verses 7 through 11. The example it gives in verse 9, uh, let me just translate. I'll put it in the Matt Howell translation. Let's say uh, my daughter, Zoe Kate, comes up to me, and she's hungry. She asks for a sandwich. Daddy, can I have a PB&J? And I'm like, sure, honey, sit down. And she sits down, and then I go outside, and I get a rock from our front porch. And I put it on a plate. I'm like, here, eat this. No, no human father would do that, I hope. Uh, but, but that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you know, human fathers would never do that. And if human fathers, who themselves are evil, would not do that, how much more will your heavenly father give you good gifts? And so the image that he gives you here is, that, is this image of a father that is infinitely committed to your good infinitely for you, committed to giving you good gifts. Now, here's the million-dollar question. How in the world do you take these two images, God as judge, God as father, and bring them together to make sense? How can God be judge? Because if he's judge, this means that he has to be intolerant of sin. He is, in that way, against us because we're all guilty. How can he be that and at the same time father, which means he's completely tolerant of sinners and and is committed to grace and mercy and love? How can he be both judge and father, both holy and loving, both against us and for us, both intolerant and tolerant? The only way to make sense of that is at the cross. 
Because at the cross, you are seeing a demonstration of God being so just that he has to punish our sin. He has to deal with our guilt. But because he is our father and he is lovingly committed to our welfare, what he does is he said, okay, I have to punish you, but I'm not going to give you the punishment you deserve. Instead, I'm going to crawl down in the person of Jesus and take the punishment myself. And so only at the cross do these two realities come together where Jesus, fully God, fully man, stands in your place and bears the full weight of God's justice for you. And therefore, his justice, his love come together, and therefore you get, you get your issues dealt with. Your guilt gets atoned for on the basis of the work of someone else. And salvation for you is extended completely by grace whenever you hook into that reality by faith. And really, really the cross is, is, is the key to real tolerance. Real tolerance. And, and let me explain why, and then we'll be done. When you come to know God as judge, this is what actually strengthens your resolve to, to pursue and to fight for issues of truth and beauty and goodness. Because, you know, these things matter to him. They matter to him so much that he has to deal with it. And when you know God as your judge, those issues become much more real to you. They, they, your heart gets synchronized with his. What matters to him matters to you. But when you also come to know God as your father, this is, what, this is what softens you. This is what makes you more gentle, more humble. Because if you're, if you're going to admit that you're saved by grace, here's what you're admitting. You're admitting that you are intrinsically no better than anybody else. You're no better than a pedophile. You're no better than a rapist. You're no better than a terrorist. Grace flattens humanity down to the bottom and says, look, there's nothing in me that made God want to save me. He did it purely by grace, purely by his mercy. If you're going to admit you're saved completely by grace, that's what you're admitting about yourself, which completely humbles you. It completely softens you. And therefore, you don't even, you don't, your legs get taken out from under you if you're even tempted to look at somebody else and to say, I'm better than them, I'm smarter than them. They don't have any grasp on reality like I do. It actually, only the cross enables you to dialogue with someone, to disagree with them, but to do it in a completely winsome, gracious, gentle way. Why? Because at the center of your faith is a man dying for people that disagreed with him lovingly pouring out his life for people that disagreed with him. Only the cross will enable you, on the one hand, to to say that sin is sin, to fight for truth, but at the same time to lay down your life for the people that you deem to be sinners because you know yourself to be the chief sinner. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can make you passionate about truth and yet at the same time unbelievably soft and tender and winsome and loving as you do it. So my prayer for you and for me is that that would be true of us. That the gospel would soften us and yet at the same time strengthen us. Strengthen our resolve for truth, beauty, goodness, and yet at the same time make us infinitely more humble. Because that's, 
That's what this campus needs. That's what this culture needs. That's what this world needs. More people that will stand up for injustice and truth, but not do it with venom and acid and bricks, but would would do it with love and service. May that be true of you and may be true of me. Let me pray. Father, would you make us these types of people? Would you transform this community into a community of people that are not afraid about dialogue and about serious and um, uh, heavy issues, uh, but, but to give us a boldness and yet a humility and a compassion and a tenderness as we do it. Father, would the Lord Jesus become more real to our own hearts and our own lives? I pray that the gospel of grace would sink deeper and deeper and deeper down um, and, and make us more passionate, more gentle, uh, more aggressive about truth, and yet more uh, careful and compassionate about the way that we handle it. Would you do this work in me because I desperately need it? And would you do the work in these folks as well? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.